Oh, babies, when they come into the house, they'll change any, everything, won't they? I mean, they liven the place up. You know, at Christmas, a baby changed everything. That's why we're here. We're here to celebrate. We're here to learn about our Savior. Luke chapter 2, probably familiar verses. I want to just read verses 7 through 11 and let you soak them in. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning. And I guess if we were honest, there's and has been a lot of things on our mind. But you. It's pretty easy to look at our culture and see how you've been cast aside for some cultural greater good, and yet we have to confess we're guilty of setting you aside for all our plans, all our responsibilities. Yet, Lord, we're here this morning because we know that's not really what we want to do, and we know that's not really what you would want. So we, as your people, pray, God, that as we open your word, as we consider credible message of Christmas, Lord, that we be compelled to rearrange life according to your preeminence. So, Lord, encourage us, direct us, convict us, whatever is needed this morning in these moments. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In our culture and the landscape of America, happy holidays, seasons, greetings. They are safe and they're acceptable terms. Many aren't afraid of really talking about a God and when, especially when tragedy strikes. But the important question to ask is which God? The God of Islam? The God of Hinduism? The God of self? Or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised Messiah, the risen Lord? You see, it's respectable to celebrate many gods in America except Jesus Christ. You see, many have a problem with him. But yet 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9 warns Christians and proclaims to you and I that Christ would be rejected by men. He'd be the rejected stone. He'd be the stumbling stone. Because Peter knew that in the generations to come, Jesus would be unwelcome. Because standing in the way of this grand plan of religious unity is the person of Jesus Christ. But as we read this morning, as the scriptures proclaim and the Spirit continually testifies to, he's the only one qualified to save. Jesus is in a class all his own. 
First of all, the reason he's in a class all his own as we look at the Christmas story is we're told about this virgin birth. A savior would be born. A qualified savior would be born. Not a sinful one. And as we look at all the other religious leaders, we look at all the other gods, the question to be asked is, are any others qualified? Hindu Swami, the Hindu religious teachers, are any of their teachers sinless? Do they even claim sinlessness? No. Matter of fact, we're told if anyone claims sinlessness, he's not a Hindu. What about Buddha? He never claimed sinlessness. He found a group of ascetics and preached to them. He taught all outward things were a distraction. He sought enlightenment. He sought a life of discipline. But he died that way. No sinlessness here. He pointed people to this noble eightfold path, but he offered them nothing himself. No hope. No help there. Representatives from the Muslim faith, they, they know from the Quran the prophet Muhammad admitted he was in need of forgiveness. Muslims agree. No sinlessness here. No perfections, no help, no hope. Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people, called His Holiness, believed to be the reincarnation from Buddha. In an interview, His Holiness said this, I'm not the best Dalai Lama there ever was, but I'm not the worst either. So what do you give the Savior, a B? No sinlessness there, no help, no hope, and His Holiness knows better. Understandably, none of the religious teachers ever claimed to be sinless savior. Their prophets proclaimed they could show the way, but they made no pretense to be able to personally forgive sins. They couldn't take you and I where we need to go. Because people drowning in the murky water of sin can't help other people who are drowning. You look at the landscape of all the religious teachers, all the so-called gods, they offer no hope. They offer no help because they're in the same boat as you and I. They need and we need a perfect Savior. That's where Jesus comes in. He's the qualified one. Read Colossians along. So read, follow along with me in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 and try to downsize Jesus after reading these. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, merging Jesus into the equality with other gods flies in the face of his rightful claim to preeminence. After reading that, you certainly can't downsize him. And he might be unwelcome in our society, but make no mistake, he's unequaled. There's no one who's in the same class, because he's the only one qualified. Peter, who walked three years with Jesus, this was his testimony, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
Paul proclaimed in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus issued a challenge to those in the crowd. Can anyone prove me guilty of sin? Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all things, yet was without sin. You see, the baby born in Bethlehem was perfect. And to be the savior of the world, he had to meet requirements. First, he had to be a male, born of a woman, as predicted in Genesis 3.15. He had to become one of us to redeem us. He had to represent us in all aspects. He had to do it perfectly. You see, all moms look at their babies and say, oh, he's perfect. But only Mary could actually make that statement be accurate. The baby was perfect, sinless. And second, he had to be sinless in order to have the perfection that God demands. As sinners, we cannot pay for our sins, much less for someone else's. You see, whether the sacrifice was, was perfect and whether it was acceptable is the key issue. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Third, he also had to be God so that it could be said that God himself undertook the rescue mission to reconcile humanity. Simply put, only Christ is both willing and able to save completely. If salvation's of the Lord, he had to provide the very sacrifice he demanded. Jesus is unequaled. He's unrivaled. And without Jesus, the storyline of the Bible disappears. Without Jesus, guilt and shame remain. Without Jesus, there's no hope of getting to God. That's why Jesus said in John 5, 23, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Salvation is found in no other name. You see, without Jesus, we have no hope. There's no heaven. John 14, 14, we're told without Jesus, you and I have no help for today. John 15, 11, we're told without Jesus, there's no possibility of joy. You see, without Jesus, we have no guide. We have no intimate friend, only barren, lost lives. He's unequaled, and he's qualified to save. And only Jesus comes with the exclusive claim, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Only Jesus is qualified to make that statement. And he stands above all the other religious teachers who would proclaim to show the way. Jesus says, I am the way. What were the results of all this? We talk about the virgin birth and this baby born. First of all, because Jesus is qualified, because of the virgin birth, it shows us, again, salvation ultimately from God. And just as God promised that the Christ would ultimately destroy the serpent, so God brought it about by his own power, not human effort. Prophecy was fulfilled. Salvation came from the Lord. Virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. He took the form of a servant without any reduction in his deity. That's why he's the only one qualified to save. If you missed last week, I encourage you to, to listen to it. It's a message I'm passionate about. And that we recognize Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, did not leave any deity in heaven. There was no reduction of deity. He took on humanity. The perfect God-man, thus only qualified to save. The baby conceived by the Holy Spirit grew in wisdom, grew in stature, and favor with God, but was a divine person who had eternally been the Son in relation to the Father and Spirit. That's why we could say that Jesus was tired as the Son of Man, but as God, he rose from the dead. 
And as the Son of Man, he was thirsty, but as the Son of God, he could walk on water. That's why as the Son of Man, he was hungry, but as the Son of God, he could feed thousands. That's Jesus, the God-man. And because of the virgin birth, it made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. But the virgin birth also made possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Luke 1, 34 and 35 told us that this baby, this child, would be holy. This fetus was a holy offspring. And when Adam sinned, the whole human race was involved. We're all sinners by nature, but that's not true of Jesus Christ. The virgin birth ensured that. Only God could carry the full weight of the penalty for our sin. No sinful man could accomplish reconciliation for another man. And because Jesus' birth is ultimately tied to every other aspect of his life, he had to be born of a virgin because the virgin birth is the gate through which God stepped into humanity. And a denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as a Savior. And so you and I stand on the truth, and we must proclaim that the Savior who died for sins was none other than the baby conceived of the Holy Spirit. Prophecy was fulfilled a sinless Savior was born, God took on flesh. That's why Isaiah 9, 6 says the son, of, son was given, but the baby was born. The son was given because he already existed, but the baby was born, was the baby born in Bethlehem. Galatians 4, 4 says God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The son was sent, the baby was born. We're once again introduced to the fact that the God became flesh. The word became flesh. And because he's a sinless savior, he's able to save completely and eternally. He's unequal. And because he's unequal, no one can take a neutral stance. No one can take a neutral attitude towards him. He demands a response. You see, when you have a baby, baby changes your plans, doesn't it? You don't sleep like you want. I mean, you can't just like go anywhere you want. As a husband and wife, you look at each other and say, man, it would be nice to have a moment of intimacy, but the baby changes that. Baby changes everything. The baby will change your plan. The baby will change how you spend your money. Ever have to pay for diapers lately? I mean, the baby will change all your plans. At Christmas, culture doesn't mind seeing a baby, but they don't want that baby to be Christ because he'll change your plans. He'll change the way you spend your money. He'll change your priorities. You see, this baby will upset everything because this baby was God who became flesh. The Word became flesh. He upset Herod's plans. I mean, think about it. I mean, he was worried about his kingship because of a baby. And so he sent all the babies in Bethlehem to be killed. You see, this baby, he'll upset your plans. Because this is Christ, the Savior. There was an article in the London Times a few years ago that talked about this. Some brave author wrote this. The fact is that we miss the whole point of the Christmas story if we try to make the infant Jesus fit our agenda rather than Achilles to his agenda. For this Jesus would not forever remain the meek and mild baby, According to Gabriel, he would be the great, perfectly holy, the unique Son of God, the Jewish Messiah, 
the one and only Savior of humanity, and try as we might to reduce the nativity to a symbol of generic human love and peace among persons of differing beliefs, it simply does not work. Because essential to the Christmas story are claims concerning who the child is. Unsettling, unsettling, necessarily offensive claims to ancients and moderns alike. Because from conception to the grave, the controversial Jesus scandalized people. And thinking human beings will continue to be affronted by his radical, divisive mission, which climaxed in his death on the cross. And which mandates from us a decision, whether a faith or cynicism, PC, readings of the Christmas story, can be just damnable, despicable distortions of God's most significant intervention in human history. Man, that's pretty straightforward. In the London Times, how great is that? Could it be that an editorialist somewhere on the other end of a computer keyboard had decided it was just time to stick up for Christ in a culture that neither did not want him nor welcomed him? There's hope. You see, Jesus' claims set him apart from any other religious teaching, any other so-called gods. And he's uncompromising, and so is his message. And yet so often, it seems, as believers, we think we can embrace Christ privately and at the same time deny the implications of his birth. And that is that he's the only way to salvation. Comes a little harder to stand on that, doesn't it? Yet Jesus warned us He warned his followers the world would reject us because of him. That's why they'd reject us. So the question is, will you stand up for Jesus in a world where he's not welcome? Therein lies the question. Matthew 5, verse 11 through 16. We're familiar with some of these verses, but the context tells us maybe something we haven't realized before. We're called to be light, we're called to be salt, but notice the context. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how it will be made salty again. It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way you may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And notice again the context of being salt and light is in the context of being persecuted. It's in the context of being unwelcome of having a message that's not welcome. For him, we are to stand up and shine, not for the cultural Jesus, but for the authentic Jesus. Gene Edward Veith in World Magazine once wrote, the day has come when faithful Christians better be ready to become unpopular. Because to say Jesus is the only way is to bring the wrath of a culture demonizing Christians as intolerant. He's hitting on something. Bill Bright echoed that. He said the defining issue for followers of Jesus Christ of our generation is this. What are we going to do with Jesus in a world that either doesn't want him as he claims to be or wants to put its spin on him to yield a harmless, sedate Jesus who threatens no one? You see, a baby in a manger threatens no one unless that baby is Christ the Lord. That changes everything. And that baby was Christ the Lord, and he stands alone. And he's uncompromising and he's unequal. 
And that child in Bethlehem was the only one qualified to save. Is the sinless, perfect God in the flesh, the only one worthy to be worshipped. And it's not enough to admire him. It's not enough to study him. And if you don't love him as Savior, you don't love him for the reason he came. For he came to save fallen humanity. What's the call? This is an extraordinary birth. I mean, let's be honest. This is, this is beyond our ability to define it. We just stand in awe of it. But with this extraordinary birth comes to you as a child of God and me an extraordinary call. It's, it's a call given to every Christian, not just some, not just those in the ministry, but to all of us. Erwin Lutzer, his words, I think, spell, speak well of this. He says, scan the religious horizons, go to libraries, read all about the great religious teachers of history. Read not simply what they taught, but what they had to say about themselves. Look not for a prophet, for the names are many, but find a savior, a qualified sinless savior. You will discover that Christ has no competitors. If there was another who claimed sinlessness, we'd be glad to check out his credentials to see how they compare with Christ. But mention the requirements of sinlessness and the religious field clears. And only one is left standing. Christ lives up to his name. There's many teachers and there's many prophets, but there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the call to you and I as believers is one, speak up for Jesus with clarity. Do it with clarity. He's the only one who's qualified to save. And he's only one who can bring you and I into relationship with God. And only those who trust Jesus as Savior will be saved. Be clear on that. With unflinching allegiance to the person and mission of Christ, stand up. Speak up for Jesus with love, clarity, and courage. Not just anyone we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate Christ the Lord. And we're not called to preach about what we're against. We're not called to preach all the other peripheral things. We're called to preach Christ, crucified and risen again. That's our message. Speak it clearly. As a Christian, you're called to that. Give careful attention to living for Jesus. You see, if the message and person of Jesus is uncompromising, it stands to reason so also should our behavior. Is your behavior... Is your lifestyle uncompromising or does it contradict the message? Too many will say Jesus is the way, but then, then they'll say I'll live my own way. In which case they undermine the very message they might be trying to say. Came across a story, a disturbing quote about a pastor of a large church in California. He said, I used to believe that we should ask Muslims to accept Christ as their savior but I don't believe that anymore. I've sensed the presence of God with Muslims, and I've come to believe that it's wrong to try to talk them into becoming Christians. I don't know what changed his mind, that he caved in on what Jesus clearly said. It's a betrayal of Jesus himself. Jesus came to make a way to God by removing the one barrier that blocks everyone's path to God, the barrier of sin. This meant that he had to die in our place to pay the price of sin. And without his sacrifice, there's no other way. But let's get personal. It's easy to throw dirt on this West Coast pastor, and he's 
unfortunately caved to the true message. But you know what? He may have bailed on the message of Jesus, but let's ask ourselves, how do you do around the water cooler at work? You stand up for Christ? Or do you bail because of a cultural pressure? And I know it's hard. <laughs> I know it's very hard. But we're to take up our cross and follow him, paying a price for him. I'm not asking us to be obnoxious about it, for sure, just humbly clear. And it's hard sometimes to fear being viewed as intolerant or bigot, and they can all stack up as pretty good reasons to be quiet, except that we're called to share this message because he's the only way to salvation. And so let me ask you, is there anything compelling about your life that would back up the words that Jesus is the way? Are you wonderfully different because Jesus is the way? Do people at work, at school, know that you're trustworthy, that you're forgiving, that you're fair, that you're honest, that you're joyful, that you're quick to speak a good word about other people? It's always, it seems easier to speak up when we've already shown up. Make sure you show up. And threes, in light of the second one, be available conduit of God's love. A watching world can't deny Christ's love in action. It's true personally, it's true corporately as a church. So what's your message? When we live like Jesus, when we love like Jesus, it provides an opportunity to speak up for Jesus with great clarity. So ask yourself, who can I reach out to this Christmas with the love of Christ? Who can I reach out to this Christmas and share clearly this message of salvation in Christ? Maybe you can ask, who can I bring to the Christmas Eve service? Who can I, who, I can help support what I've already shared with them? Who can I love in Jesus' name? Make your schedule, make your plans flexible enough to cooperate with what God might want to do. You have a neighbor who's alone Christmas, why don't you invite him into your house to be with your family? They don't have one. Or maybe it's distant. Why don't you invite them? Why don't you, you bring someone a gift that you know just really needs something, some encouragement? Love them in Jesus' name. The reality is all around us, people are confused by the gods of sensuality, power, materialism, self-indulgence, and they find disappointment and lack of fulfillment. And on December 26th, they'll sit around their Christmas tree and life will be no different. And they'll despair that day and despair the new year coming up because there's no hope. And those in this troubled world need to hear that this is not the only world, that Jesus offers a better world, a better future. The Christmas message is the truth of the gospel. Speak it often. Speak it humbly. Speak it in compassionate tones. Speak it wisely and patiently in ways that honor Jesus. Speak it prayerfully. Speak it to your own heart. Speak about Christ on planes, on buses, in the cafeteria, to your children, to your classmates, to your coworkers. Speak up and stand up, but do speak up about Jesus, about what he's done for you. Might you and I stand up for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I start with me and 
Maybe my brothers and sisters join me this morning. Forgive us for making our Christmas about so many other things than you. Not bad things. I mean, great blessings of family and, and ways to show love with gifts and meals together. All really good things. But not the main thing. Forgive us for that. Help us this Christmas as your people to be incredibly sensitive to what your Spirit is doing around us. We know the Holy Spirit will always point to you, Jesus. So help us to cooperate with what your Spirit's already doing in our neighbors' lives, in our classmates, our co-workers, those around us we rub shoulders with. Empower us to lift this message up with clarity, with love and compassion. Lord, that we would speak of you not as one who's secondary in our life or just an add-on, but we'd speak of you as you really are, Christ the Lord, and that that baby born in a manger is not just any baby, but that you are unequaled, the only qualified one to save. Might that be our message? And so, Lord, as Christmas be proclaimed from hearts that adore you, might you be high and lifted up as the Lord God Almighty, the one who saves. Help us to do it, God. Help us to do it clearly, lovingly, and intentionally for your glory and the praise of your name. Amen.